We are particularly talking about history through the eyes of a Christian believer. You mentioned Dark Age Man, which I believe is one of the new Marvel episodes that are coming out. Are you serious? No. Homoousius. In unison. Homoousius. That's the reason that I teach this, is I feel like we all should be aware of history because it informs the way we approach every day. This is History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast with Angie Ferris. I'm your host, Frank Grange Jr., along with producer Wes. Make sure you check the link in our bio for our Ko-fi page. This is a great place to support the podcast, get more information and reference material, ask questions, make comments, and even chat with us. We're glad you're here. Hey, it's History Through the Eyes of Faith. I'm your host, Frank Grange Jr., along with Angie Ferris and producer Wes. Truth is, producer Wes... A little under the weather. So we are producing ourselves. Well, not really, because he will be involved in the in production. the process, in the production. He's still producing. Hey, Angie. Hey, Frank. All right. So we're in episode 82. Wow. Of History Through the Eyes of Faith. Yep. You have found it. And um, we're glad you're here. And hopefully, you know, you've listened to some other episodes. If not, that's okay. Take your time. Take your time. Enjoy them. Hey, we haven't listened to most of them. So. Oh, we have. Um, like, follow, subscribe, and hit up our Kofi site. Like, follow, subscribe. And give us a, buy us a cold brew. Help or, us out. Or, you know, some Nashville hot chicken. Oh, there's something. Yeah. Yeah, I think we could change our little button to say hot chicken. Change which button? There's a button on the Kofi site that they click to support. Oh, it says. Is it buy cold brew? But we could change it to buy hot chicken. Well, we, I recently had some hot chicken, mm-hmm. but I bought it um, at the store. I mean, at the grocery store. Like, it's just spicy chicken. It's not the well-known Nashville hot chicken. And if you don't mind, what is your association? What Do you have any feelings, comments, history with Nashville hot chicken? Yeah, um, we've tried several different, and we've heard the backstory of Prince's, which is pretty interesting. Which I know. Okay. Yeah, so that's it, and and we've we've done two or three different. There's one up on our end of town. We've been to. We like going to Hattie B's local. I'm not. I can't take it real hot. Yeah, but well, Tim enjoys it. Well, in you've been in, in the Nashville area since the late '80s, right? Mm, mid, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or '85, '86, '84. Really, '84. Yep. Are you fam- have you been familiar with Nashville hot chicken since 84? No, no. It's just like it showed up in the last 10 years. Right. That was what I was trying to get out of it. Yeah, yeah. Right. So on the sh- local food tours that I've done, I ask people if they're familiar with Nashville hot chicken. They're like, yeah, yeah. And I share with them that I've been in Nashville since the late 80s. And it wasn't a thing. I didn't know it was a thing. Um, you know, I'm thinking, by the way, you just got some icebreakers. Where'd you find those? Were those mine? No, they're mine. They came out of my purse. Oh, okay, good. Because I had some like mints over that area of the studio, Studio B. Uh, and I thought, well, I didn't know those were over there. So I'm good. Um, Nashville Hot Chicken. I just remember thinking, oh, this is the thing. When, I, when it really distracted me was when I saw a Kentucky Fried Chicken commercial. 
with their new Nashville hot chicken. And I'm like, mm, I don't, I'm not familiar with this. And so when we take people on the tour, we tell them like what you mentioned, the princess story. Well, this is the story that I tell, uh, which is probably yeah, probably close to other stories, but being living here since the late eighties, um, I can vouch for the fact that not many people knew about Nashville hot chicken until recently. Right. But it has been around for a long time. It's been around since the forties. Ah. Um, on the northern side of Nashville. Right. Okay. And the story goes, and, and you mentioned a couple of names of places. And like there's Party Fowl, there's Hattie Bees, there's Princes, there's Boltons, there's probably others that I don't yeah, know. Yeah, there's about. one up on the north side of town. I mean, northeast side of town. I can't remember that. that and, but Princes is the original. Mm-hmm. And it's Princes Hot Chicken, and they had a place on the north side of Nashville. Now they have a place down near us in the south side. But um, the north one burned. It's not there. But they have one in the new development on Broadway, on 5th and Broadway. They have, mm. a, they have a storefront there. But the story on Prince is there's a guy named Thornton Prince, and he was a ladies' man. Mm-hmm. This is what I be hearing. I be yeah. hearing about the ladies' man part. He, he was That's a lady. I be hearing. Okay. <laughs> ladies' man. Uh, married five times that we know of. Mm. Um, and at some point, the woman that he was with had had enough. He'd come in late. Obviously, maybe had been with someone else. She wasn't having it. So he got up on Sunday morning. She knew that he was going to have fried chicken. And she made fried chicken, but tried to put as much spice in it as she could find. Just, she was going to burn him up. She could burn him up. Maybe he'd have a heart attack. Don't know. But I'm getting my revenge. And this is how I tell it on the tour, that he took a bite of that chicken and he said, oh my gosh, this is the best chicken I've ever had. So that didn't work. She leaves and he tries to figure out what she did. So he spends a few years figuring out the recipe and then he opens Prince's Hot Chicken and Fish Shack or Hot. So he wasn't even in the chicken business before that no, happened. No, That's the story. Um, and he opened uh, Prince's Hot Chicken and Fish, I think it might have been. Um, in the in the forties in North Nashville, and it it was always a venue and a place, and people like the hot chicken. And there's another family, the Bolton Boltons, is a family is a hot chicken place that I I think there might have been a story that they were at the person came from Prince's and started his own or something. Um, but there, in my opinion, there was just a couple of those places for decades until I don't know maybe some marketing person decided we're going to make Nashville hot chicken a thing. And then Hattie B's came to town, which always has a long line around it. Um, Party Fowl came to town. So uh, hot chicken is a thing. So that's the Yeah, the, the ones story. I was thinking of is called Helen's Hot Chicken. Okay. Um, in Gallatin. I mean, in Madison. But yeah, so it's been around a while. So here's the thing that we, we tell on the tour that, by the way, if you're listening and you haven't taken the tour, I'm giving you a little something here extra. Um, we this is and, now, and tell I us the name of the tour again, so when they come to local, Nashville, local taste of Nashville. Yep, you can find it through Airbnb, through TripAdvisor, whatever. Local taste of Nashville. So um, this is how I tell it. I said I don't know how everybody found out about Nashville hot chicken, but there was a young lady who went to uh, Tennessee State University in the north side of town and became a local news anchor here at Channel 5, and then went on to have her own show, a nationally syndicated show. And you may have heard of her. Her name is Oprah Winfrey. 
So maybe she told people about Nashville Hot Chicken. Mm. There's a connection. There is a connection. That's a cool story to tell. Or it could have some, you know, because it kind of goes in line with when everybody started coming to Nashville. Yeah. So. But it wasn't, no, somebody had to choose it. I mean, if you came to Nashville in the 90s, early 2000s, you're not, there's not going to be a hot chicken place on Broadway. There's not going to be a hot chicken place yeah. at the tourist places. And everywhere you travel in the country, on the menu, they'll have Nashville's hot chicken. Yeah. It's crazy. Might have should have gotten paid for that. Mm-hmm. Trademark it. So that's a little story about Nashville hot chicken princes. And there's a Hattie B's down on Broadway that typically has a long line. But in the food court at 5th and Broadway, that new place, there's a Prince's Hot Chicken in there. And, you know, if you know it, just go to the Prince's Hot Chicken and get the real thing. Yeah. And they have, the spice gets up so hot that you can't eat it. Yeah. And at Helen's, they cook it after you order it. Oh, that's the way they did it at Bolton's too. Yeah. 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 You wait. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Nashville Hot Chicken um, Medium was... Uh, enough for me. I have to do mild. I can't even. Yeah. I sometimes I just go with the southern and southern. The southern. I don't even get to the mild. Mm. If that but mild sits there on that bread for a while, kind of piles up. Mm-mm, can't take it. Yeah, and it's typically served with white bread, like loaf bread and a pickle. Yeah, the top level at Hattie B's is shut the cluck up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's some hot and, and Party Fowl uses a ghost pepper in their hottest chicken, oh. and it's called Poultry Geist. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> what fun. Ghost pepper, get it? Yeah, maybe we can do like a live, like a, a studio audience recording one time, have like a when you trip to Nashville and come um, sit in on history through the eyes of faith. I want to know where you guys are. Okay, I'm like looking on our stats, and we got people listening all over the world, all over the country. We want to hear from you. Check out our our mm-hmm. link on our webpage and let us know. Give us a comment, a shout out. Yeah, we're up to 25 countries outside the United States right now. All right, let's do a tour. Yeah, tour so, <laughs> sounds good. Well, here we are in 82. Yep. And uh, 81 is kind of a recap of a recap a little bit, but it's good info. I mean, it was, and it was good to know. You need to know more about the power of relics and the... Um, and feudalism and uh, just a little about the workday life of an average peasant. Whatever. Are we going into something new today? Yes. Yes, and um, all of those things, like we said, we were just continuing to immerse ourselves in the mindset of the person of the Middle Ages so that we can understand the impacts of the things that are happening, okay? But what we're going into today is going back to some church history that I find, like, really interesting. So don't turn off your brain if you're not into church history, because I think that you will find this relative, and I end up in a lot of conversations with people where this stuff plays out. So like we've been talking about over different periods, Eastern Roman Empire, Western Roman Empire, then Western civilization, the Byzantine Empire, which we talked about was only called Byzantine many years later. They were still considered themselves the Roman Empire. And we've been talking about the geopolitical split. 
we've talked about the rise of the Pope, the idea that that became the Pope. But what I want to go back to now, because there's event, an event that happens in 1054 that is referred to as the Great Schism. And that is when the reason it's called that is like they kind of mark that some people, and particularly people who have to, history books that have to make things concise, you know, mark that as the final schism between the Western church and the Eastern church. All right. The final break. Yes. And so what we're going to talk about is the history leading up to that, which we've talked about in geopolitical terms, but we're going to talk about some church stuff. Like, how did this happen and what, what does that look like today? Um, one thing that a lot of Christians don't realize, Protestant Christians in particular, was that the church that became the Catholic church was the original church. Like, it's not like, oh, let's go start a Catholic church. Oh, let's go start a, this church. We had the church, the, the folks that were the followers of Jesus Christ. And as we've watched through history, what happened to that gathering of people? as it gets handed off from apostle to apostle to person to church, you know, we can trace that back to the early church fathers, to the early church councils. And then we have Constantine come on the scene and now the emperor and the government are all involved with that. And then when we have the split, when we have this um, Constantine move into the East and the Eastern church, and then we've talked about how in the East there are patriarchs and in the West, there's the Pope. And so this is just kind of the talking about how that all came about. Are you excited? I yeah. think I find it very interesting. So because many of us will run into Orthodox Christians, whether that's Greek Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, whatever. And like, well, how is that different? What does that mean? Um, we could have a lot of Catholics that listen to us. Our backgrounds, Frank and I's background is a Protestant background. So just understanding how the Protestant church came from the Catholic church, which happens several hundred years after this, um, is sometimes all that we learn, right? Yeah. We don't learn way back to the beginning and then what the heck is Orthodox? What is, you know, so that's kind of where I was when I started this. So my main source for this is a book called uh, The Orthodox Church, A Clear, Detailed Introduction to the Orthodox Church, written for the non-Orthodox as well as for the Orthodox Christians who wish to know more about their own tradition. So the title, The Orthodox Church, is written by Timothy Ware, who was a convert to the Orthodox Church okay. back in the mid-20th century, very wise, wrote a lot, very well-spoken, and so... He tells a really good history, and so I'm using his notes to talk about this event. Um, How did you find this book? I went looking for it. I think I actually got it at McKay's, but I was looking, I was looking for sources to give me a well laid out history. I had found. Um, we're going to reference it toward the end of the this episode, but there's a section in Turning Points that marks that uses this Great Schism of ten. Um, I said 56, I think it's 54. You said 1054 before. 1054 as a as a turning point. And so I'd read summaries of things, but 
when I was, I wanted to understand more about orthodoxy. So I found, I ran across this book, decided to get it. When I started reading it, he just had a great history. He was a good storyteller of giving more of the details and kind of pulling it all together. So first, let's talk a little bit about the Orthodox Church. Orthodox often call themselves, quote, the Church of the Seven Councils. Now, if you go back and look, there has been more than seven councils, okay? But those first seven Mm -hmm. are the ones that are considered to be Orthodox and that they hold to. By this, they do not mean that the Orthodox Church has ceased to think creatively since 787, which was the last council, seventh council. But they see in the period of the councils the great age of theology. So Orthodoxy in the period of the councils, the great age of theology, and next to the Bible, it is the seven councils which the Orthodox Church takes as its standard and guide in seeking solutions to the new problems which arise in every generation. Hmm. So you've got the Bible and the councils that are the standard and the guide to the new problems which arise in every generation. One of the things that the Orthodox hold dearly to is we don't change, that we are the original and we do as the original did. We're not making new rules and change, you know, the, back to the basics and staying with the basics. Mm. So they look to those councils and the Bible when dealing with contemporary issues. Orthodoxy has always attached great importance to the place of councils in the life of the church. It believes that the council is the chief organ whereby God has chosen to guide his people. And it, and it regards the Catholic Church as essentially a conciliar church. Catholic meaning universal church. That's what the word Catholic means. So not the Roman Catholic Church organization, but the universal church as essentially a conciliar church, a church that is of counsel. Okay. Conciliar. In the church, there is neither dictatorship nor individualism. But harmony and unanimity, its members remain free, but not isolated, for they are united in love, in faith, and in sacramental communion. In a council, this idea of harmony and free unity. Why can't it be unity? Unanimity. I think it has to do with being in unison. Not Anyway, I don't know. Unanimous. Okay. Okay. (laughs) All agree. Okay. This idea of harmony and agreement can be seen worked out in practice. In a true council, no single member arbitrarily imposes his will upon the rest. But each consults with the others, and in this way they all freely achieve a common mind. A council is a living embodiment of the essential nature of the church. I just find that very interesting. So it's not like a congress or a parliament where there's two sides and they're hashing it out. It's not mean, meant to be a balance of powers. It's you come together as a unanimous body, all belonging to the body of Christ, and you freely share and consult with each other until you come to a common mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. I just find that really interesting. When So now he's going to go back. So So that's, the emphasis that orthodoxy places on the council and those first seven, and you can dive deep into the Orthodox church and figure out why it was only the first seven and all that stuff. But 
they looked to that and the scriptures to help make decisions. So now he's going to go back to the beginning of the church and kind of tell a story. And he says, when Paul and the other apostles traveled around the Mediterranean world, they moved within a closely knit political and cultural unity, the Roman Empire. And we've discussed that. So the Roman Empire existed. Everybody knew how it worked. It's closely knit in political and culture. And that's where they were. This empire embraced many different national groups, often with languages and dialects of their own. Okay, a diverse group. But all these groups were governed by the same emperor. There was a broad Greco-Roman civilization in which educated people throughout the empire shared. Either Greek or Latin was understood almost everywhere in the empire, and many could speak both languages. These facts greatly assisted the early church in its missionary work. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about that, the commonness of the language and the government and helping spread. She's taking a sip of her beverage. <gasps> but in the centuries that followed, the unity of the Mediterranean world gradually disappeared. Mm-hmm. We've talked about that, right? The political unity was the first to go. From the end of the third century, the empire, while still theoretically one, was usually divided into two parts. We discussed mm-hmm. how there were emperors who divided it into two parts for management purposes. An Eastern and a Western, each under its own emperor. Constantine furthered this process of separation by founding a second imperial capital in the East alongside old Roman Italy. Now, he's telling it like it was two alongside. We've talked about it as if Constantine moved the capital over there. I never <laughs> take a sip of my, oh my beverage. Gosh. It's a lot. I got to move this. Okay. So then after this political unity went, came the barbarian invasions at the start of the fifth century. Apart from Italy, much of which remained within the empire for some time longer. Italy was in for longer. The West was carved up among barbarian chiefs. The Byzantines... Who were the Byzantines again? No, the east side. Never forgot the ideals of Rome under Augustus and Trajan and still regarded their empire as, in theory, universal. Mm -hmm. So they still saw all of it in theory, even though they weren't able to manage those other parts. But Justinian was the last emperor who seriously attempted to bridge the gulf between theory and fact. And his conquests in the West were soon abandoned. So now you have two sections functioning deeper. So then what does that do? The political unity of the Greek East and the Latin West was destroyed by the barbarian invasions and never permanently restored. During the late 6th and 7th centuries, East and West were further isolated from each other by the Avar and Slay invasions of the Balkan Peninsula. That's people from the north and from Asia coming in. Illicrium, which used to serve as a bridge, became in this way a barrier between Byzantium and the Latin world. So people I think moved. we talked about that. Yeah. I think we put elicrium. Uh-huh. I can't, I'm allergic to elicrium. I can't have any elicrium. Oh no, that's dangerous check stuff. The, okay. Check the ingredients. And then here comes to some more that we talked about. The severance was carried a stage further by the rise of Islam. The Mediterranean, which was once called our sea by the Romans, remember, now passed largely into Arab control. We saw that happen. Cultural and economic contacts between the Eastern and Western Mediterranean never entirely ceased, but they became far more difficult. 
Mm-hmm. We've looked at that on the map and discussed the mm-hmm. fallout. Talked about how you couldn't get no papyrus. Yes, all of that. Then, if you remember, uh, we were in a conversation not long ago about iconoclast, iconoclasm, that idea of having icons. Okay. Do you remember this? I don't. Okay. Well, it was at lunch after church one Sunday. and Oh, Tim, I wasn't listening. Tim started bringing up questions and we talked about it. I didn't hear it. But anyway, in the Orthodox Church, there is a tradition of having icons, which are very much similar to the idea of relics in that it's pictures of the saints to be reminded of them. And they leave prayers with them and worship with them and this kind of stuff that Others often, other people outside of the Orthodox Church sometimes accuse them of idolatry in that sense. So there was a big controversy between the church in the West and the church in the East over these icons, okay, Mm -hmm. because they weren't a part of the church in the West. Well, I think they have been on some levels, but anyway. the icons were like, you know, pop icons. Yes. So this is the iconoclast controversy contributed still further to the division between Byzantium and the West. The popes were firm supporters of the Iconodule standpoint, which is the one against icons. And so for many decades, they found themselves out of communion with the iconoclast emperor and patriarch at Constantinople. Okay. So in the East, in the government in the East, the patriarch would be the head of the church. The emperor would be the head of the government, which was the same as in the beginning, the emperor of Rome and the bishops, right? But the patriarch is for Constantinople, and then there'd be a patriarch for Antioch and a patriarch for these other locations, which were just another word for, like, bishop. All right. Cut off from Byzantium and in need of help, in 754, Pope Stephen turned northwards and visited the Frankish ruler Pepin. Remember this? Mm Mm-hmm. This marked the first step in a decisive change of orientation so far as the papacy was concerned. Hitherto, Rome had continued in many ways to be part of the Byzantine world, but now it passed increasingly under Frankish influence, although the effects of this reorientation did not fully become apparent until the middle of the 11th century. So there's this marking of, okay, Rome's turning away from the east and toward the north. Pope Stephen's visit to Pepin was followed half a century later by a much more dramatic event on Christmas Day in the year 800. What happened? Pope Leo III crowned Charles the Great, otherwise known as Charlemagne, King of the Franks, as emperor. Mm -hmm. Charlemagne sought recognition from the ruler at Byzantium, but without success. For the Byzantines, still adhering to the principle of imperial unity, regarded Charlemagne as an intruder and the papal coronation as an act of schism within the empire. So, the fact that he was crowned emperor... They're like, no, you can't be emperor. We already have an emperor. And this is like a revolt and a break here. So we're just poo-pooing that. 800. Yeah. So the creation of a Holy Roman Empire in the West, instead of drawing Europe closer together, only served to alienate East and West more than before. The cultural unity lingered on, but in a greatly attenuated, which means having been reduced in force, effect, or value. That's what the word attenuated means. Means so file that away, y'all. If mm-hmm. you didn't already know that, attenuated. Use it this week. Yeah. So the cultural unity lingered on, but in a much reduced form. In both East and West, people of learning still lived within the classical tradition, which the church had taken and made its own. Notice that 
people of learning. Not the guy on the street. Is people learning. People of learning. Educated people. Or what? They still lived within the classical tradition, which the church had taken and made its own. But as time went on, they began to interpret this tradition in increasingly divergent ways, made more difficult by problems of language. So what they mean by divergent ways is it was being interpreted differently in the East than in the West. The days when educated people were bilingual was over. So there was a day Uh when Latin was the language of the church and Greek was the language of people knew both. Okay. By the year 450, there were very few in Western Europe who could read Greek. And after 600, although Byzantium still called itself the Roman Empire, it was rare for a Byzantine to speak Latin, the language of the Romans. So what's happening in the East is becoming completely Greek and the West completely Latin. Photius, the great scholar in 9th century Constantinople, could not read Latin. And in 864, an emperor at Byzantium, Michael III, even called the language in which Virgil once wrote, wrote a, quote, barbarian and Scythic tongue. So they're looking down on Latin. Mm-hmm. If Greeks wished to read Latin works or vice versa, if Latin people in the West wished to read Greek works, they could only do so in translation. And usually they did not trouble to do even that because they no longer drew upon the same sources nor read the same books. Greek East and Latin West drifted more and more apart. So you get an idea mm-hmm. where they had the same sources, the same books. They don't now. In 4th century Europe, there had been one Christian civilization. In 13th century Europe, there were two. Okay. Perhaps it is in the reign of Charlemagne that the schism of civilization first becomes clearly apparent. The Byzantines, for their part, remained enclosed in their own world of ideas and did did little to meet the West halfway. In the 9th and in later centuries, they usually failed to take Western learning as seriously as it deserved. They dismissed, <clears throat> this is interesting, <clears throat> they dismissed all Franks as barbarians and nothing more. Mm. So, these political and cultural factors could not but affect the life of the church and make it harder to maintain religious unity. Cultural and political estrangement can lead only too easily to ecclesiastical disputes, as may be seen from the case of Charlemagne. Refused recognition in the political sphere by the Byzantine emperor, Charlemagne, he was quick to retaliate with the charge of heresy against the Byzantine church. So when the Byzantine emperor doesn't respect him as emperor, then he starts accusing the Byzantine church of heresy. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) He denounced the Greeks not for using, oh, it's going to be a big side story. Yeah. You know, the fact that this is a podcast and that we have to speak a lot, you're having a hard time with speaking part. Let's just T- tonight. <laughs> um, today. All right. There's this word called the filioque. The filioque. F i l i o q u e. F i l l o q u e. F i l i o q u e. I'm just going to pop it in right here and see. I have an idea. I mean, I kind of know what it is, but. I'm going to see what they say. It is, <clears throat> it's a Latin phrase that means from the sun. And the phrase was added to the text of the Christian creed by the Western church in the Middle Ages and considered one of the major causes 
of the schism between the Eastern and Western Church. Eastern and Western Church. Mm-hmm. So, I'm not going to get... I'm not going to get this exactly right. Is Philoquay going to have a card? No. It, uh, that's disappointing. Yeah. It has to do with the Nicene Creed. Saying that um, the Holy Spirit came from the Father. And in one case, they say it came from the Father. And then I think what got it <coughs> added in was that it proceeded from the Father and the Son. So that phrase, and the Son, mm-hmm. is the added phrase. And so it became this big controversy because the East said that the West had changed the creed. And the West was <coughs> some I don't know what the... <coughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I don't know what their argument was. So you can go back and read about all that you want to. The point is, it was a controversy. It was a big controversy. The Nicene Creed. No. Caused the Philoquay. No, the Philoquay was the controversy. And you can go back and read when it got inserted and why, okay? So I'm going to go back and say, so the charge that Charlemagne made against, so by this time, the West had added this to the creed, and they'd already been fussing about it. But Charlemagne said, okay, you're not going to recognize me in Ember. Emperor, I'm going to call you out for heresy because you're not using the Philoquay in the creed. And so he, he declined to accept the decisions of the Seventh Ecumenical Council, which must be the one that said. And the Seventh Councils are part of the Greek Orthodox. Right. We so about he's before. fussing on that. So it is true that Charlemagne only knew of these decisions through a faulty translation, which seriously distorted their true meaning. But he seems in any case to have been semi-iconoclast in his views as against it anyway. So he starts fussing with them and calling them heretics. The different political situations in East and West made the church assume different outward forms so that people came gradually to think of church order in conflicting ways. The different political situations made it, their outward forms look different. One thing in the East, the emperor was all involved in the church, too. Um, From the start, there had been a certain Difference of emphasis here between East and West. In the East, there were many churches whose foundation went... This is very interesting, too. To me, this carries a lot of weight. There were many churches whose foundation went back to the apostles in the East. There was a strong sense of equality of all bishops, of the collegial and conciliar nature of the church. All the bishops are equal. We meet in council together. That's how decisions get made. You have... Antioch, you have Ephesus, you have Constantinople, you have, um, anyway, could name them all. The East acknowledged the Pope as the first bishop in the church, but saw him as the first among equals. So the Bishop of Rome had come to be known as the Pope, and the East saw him as the first among equals. In the West, on the other hand, there was only one great see claiming apostolic foundation, Rome. Mm-hmm. So that Rome came to be regarded as the apostolic see. It took this higher place in the West. The West, while accepted the decisions of the ecumenical councils, did not play a very active part in the councils themselves. I think you remember the ones we were talking about, they would send a couple of representatives, but most of the most of the churches were in the East. So most of the people attending the councils were. The church was seen less as a college 
and more as a monarchy, the monarchy of the Pope. In the West. In the West. So to me, that's a huge difference there. Okay. This initial divergence in outlook was made more acute by political developments. As was only natural, the barbarian invasions and the consequent breakdown of the empire in the West served greatly to strengthen the autocratic structure of the Western Church. Remember, we talked about that. Can you think of a couple of stories? I'm, I'm, I did a research here, and I got something to share in a minute, so ask that question again. Right now, ask it again? Yeah. We talked about, uh, well, let me go on. In the East, there was a strong secular head, the emperor, to uphold the civilized order and to enforce law. In the West, after the advent of the barbarians, there was only a plurality of warring chiefs, all more or less usurpers. For the most part, it was the papacy alone which could act as a center of unity, as an element of continuity and stability in the spiritual and political life of Western Europe. Right. Pope Leo. Yes. By force of circumstances, the Pope, the Pope assumed a part which the Greek patriarchs were not called to play. By force of circumstances, the Pope had to step in and show some political leadership. And the Greek patriarchs always had the emperor, so they never had to do that. He was, the Pope was issuing commands not only to his ecclesiastical subordinates, but to secular rulers as well. And that happens more and more as we move through the Middle Ages. We're going to hear more and more about that. The Western Church gradually became centralized to a degree unknown anywhere in the four patriarchates of the East. Monarchy in the West, in the East, collegiality. Monarchy in the West, in the East, collegiality. That's a huge difference. Yeah. Okay. Is it time for your thing? No. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm just thinking okay. and listening. And... In Byzantium, many educated laymen took an active interest in theology. So here's a difference. You've got lay people very interested in theology. Some of the most learned Byzantine patriarchs were laymen before they became patriarchs. But in the West, only effective education that was there, which survived the Dark Ages, was the church educating the clergy. Theology became the preserve of the priests, since most of the lay could not, laity could not even read. So you've got lay theologians in the East becoming patriarchs. Only people who are in the church are getting educated and discussing theology. In so the West. Yeah, in the West. Um, so the relations between Eastern and Western Christendom were also made more difficult by the lack of a common language. Because the two sides could no longer communicate easily with one another, and each could no longer read what the other wrote, misunderstandings arose much more easily. They shared universe of discourse. The shared universe of discourse was lost. East and West were becoming strangers to one another, and this was something from which both were likely to suffer. In the early church, there had been unity in the faith, but a diversity of theological schools. From the start, Greeks and Latins had each approached the Christian mystery in their own way. That was not a problem. And that's the same in the world today. Christians in different places, uh, how did they put it? A diversity of theological schools. They look at things differently. At the risk of some oversimplification, it can be said that the Latin approach was more practical. The Greek was more speculative. The Latin, which would be the West, thought was influenced by juridical ideas. What does that word mean? What does it sound like? Juridical ideas? Mm -hmm. Like juries, justice, jurisdiction. Yeah. 
it has to do with laws and the Latin was influenced by more one, two, three, four, this is the way it is, by the concepts of the Roman law, while the Greeks understood theology in the context of worship and in the light of the holy liturgy, much more ethereal, mysterious. When thinking about the Trinity, Latin started with the unity of the Godhead, Greeks with the threeness of the persons. So if the Trinity is three and one, the Latins are focusing on the one and the Greeks are focusing on the three. Well, okay. When reflecting on the crucifixion, Latins thought primarily of Christ the victim, Greeks of Christ the victor. Latins talked more of redemption, Greeks of deification, which deification sounds like they're becoming a God, and that is a word they use, but it would be similar to the word we use for sanctification. And just as a reminder, Latins are the West. Latins are the West, and they're talking more about redemption and the act of Christ dying for you. And the East is talking more about the victory that Christ has made over sin and death and the process of becoming more like Christ. Different emphasis. Now that the two sides were becoming strangers to one another, with no political and little cultural unity, with no common language, there was a danger that each side would follow its own approach in isolation and push it to extremes, forgetting the value in the other point of view. We have spoken of the different doctrinal approaches in East and West, but there were two points of doctrine where the two sides no longer supplemented one another but entered into direct conflict, and that was the papal claims and the filioque. 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 Okay. The factors which we have mentioned were sufficient in themselves to place a serious strain upon the unity of Christendom. Yet this author believes for all of those factors, unity might have been maintained had there not been these two further points of difficulty. The papacy and the filioque. We have already had occasion to mention the papacy when speaking of the different political situations in East and West. We've seen how the centralized and monarchical structure of the Western Church was reinforced by the barbarian invasions. Now, so long as the Pope claimed an absolute power only in the West, Byzantium raised no objections. Yes, you can be the authority in the West, but the Byzantines did not... The Byzantines did not mind if the Western Church was centralized, so long as the papacy did not interfere in the East. The Pope, however, believed his immediate power of jurisdiction to extend to the East as well as to the West, and as soon as he tried to enforce this claim with the Eastern Patriarchates, trouble was bound to arise. The Greeks assigned to the Pope a primacy of honor, but not the universal supremacy which he regarded as his due. Pope saw himself over not just a particular Pope, but the office of the papacy was defined as over all of Christendom. And the East was like, no, you have a position of honor as the seat of Peter and Paul, but not authority over the others. Let me ask a question to get ahead of ourselves a little bit. The Eastern Church. Yes. Is that the Orthodox Church today? Yes. And and you can... Go do a little research on what churches are under that umbrella, like Greek Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox. I think there's there's several, um, but yes, they come from all of those churches come from that tradition, right? Okay. It, there were a few that broke off after one of the creeds that we talked about that still look more like an Eastern church than a Western church, but are not under the patriarchate. 
but there whereas like the catholic church is is arranged around parishes and location the eastern church is arranged around patriarchates so there's actually greek orthodox churches in other parts of the world besides greek that fall under the authority of that patriarchate that yeah, makes sense yeah. the um the f- Pope viewed infallibility as his own prerogative. The Greeks held that in matters of the faith, the final decision rested not with the Pope alone, but with a council representing all the bishops of the church. So final authority, infallibility, that's a big word. Yeah. It's the prerogative of the Pope because he speaks for Peter. But the Greeks held that in matters of faith, the final decision rested not just with the Pope, but with the council representing all the bishops of the church. Here we have two different conceptions of the visible organization of the church. So does that kind of help you see the differences? Oh, yeah, quite a bit. And, and how we came to that? So then, How we came to a difference between Eastern and Western. Yeah, and so the reason that they say here in 1054 we have this great schism, we'll give a little history to that. So I think it was in 1052, the Normans had evaded Italy, which was forcing the And in doing that, so the Normans are coming from the north, okay? And they're Roman church, okay? And they're forcing the Greeks in the Byzantine part of Italy to conform to the Latin creed and the Latin usage. The patriarch of Constantinople, who was named Surularius, in return, he was so hilarious. C-E-R-U-L-A-R-I-U-S. Michael's his first name. Let's just call him Michael. In return, demanded that the Latin churches should adopt Greek practices. And in 1052, when they refused, he closed them. So he said, no, the Latin churches have to do Greek practices, and he closes the church. And he says, this author says this was perhaps harsh, but as a patriarch, it was fully entitled to act in this manner. In 1053, however, Michael took up a more conciliatory attitude and wrote to Pope Leo IX, a later Pope Leo, offering to restore the Pope's name. In response to this offer and to settle the disputed questions of the Greek and Latin usages, Leo, in 1054, sent three delegates to Constantinople, the chief of them being a guy named Humbert, who is Bishop of Silva Candida. Main thing is Humbert, is being sent with these two other delegates mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to work on this issue. Mm-hmm. The choice of Cardinal Humbert was unfortunate for both he and Michael were men of stiff and intransigent temper who, whose mutual encounter was not likely to promote goodwill among Christians. Uh-oh. The delegates, when they called on Michael, did not create a favorable impression. Okay. So here's the, now the plot thickens. No sooner did the Roman legation arrive in Constantinople than word also came that Leo IX had unexpectedly died. Uh-oh, so nobody in charge. Not daunted, Humbert thrust a stiff papal le- letter, which he had written himself, onto Michael, who was the patriarch in Constantinople. Mm-hmm. That letter reminded the patriarch in no uncertain terms that as, quote, as a hinge remaining unmoved opens and shuts a door, so Peter and his successors at Rome have an unfettered jurisdiction over the whole church, since no one ought to interfere with their position because the highest seat is judged by none. So he gives him a letter saying Peter's over the whole church and Rome is to be judged by none. 
Michael responded in kind by rejecting the letter and by questioning whether now, since the Pope was dead, Humbert was even a properly credentialed legate. Humbert was offended and resolved to leave Constantinople at once. But before he did so, this is, <coughs> this is the big thing that you'll read about in history books, he entered the great church of Hagia Sophia, remember that, the church of holy wisdom that um, uh, Constantine built? Not, no, uh, Justinian, yeah. Built. Justinian the Great. Yes. Placed, he entered this church, placed on the altar a bull excommunicating Michael, shook the dust off his feet, and left. An eastern deacon hastened after Humbert, trying to return the bull, but the overture was rebuffed, whereupon the paper was dropped in the street. Soon thereafter, Michael excommunicated the papal legation. So they just excommunicated each other. And that was the Great Schism of 1054. Now, did Michael continue to be the yeah. leader? He was a, did it was Humbert the patron. go back and be the leader even though Pope No, Leo? no, they elected a new pope. Okay. But traditionally, these events from... Nobody 10- died. What do you mean nobody died? From that event? Yeah, I thought maybe there was going to be no. some confrontation, some happening. No. Traditionally, these events from 1054 have been called the Great Schism between the Orthodox and Catholic churches, but there was, or in fact, at least two serious efforts talk... Two serious efforts. In succeeding centuries to repair the breach. And, and these are just throwing these out there to say this, you know, this gets talked about as the big split and that's when it was over. But this author's making the point. In 1274, a reunion council met in Lyons, France and came to an agreement on church practice and the creed. But that agreement was rejected by the Orthodox in the East once their delegates returned home. And then a century and a half later, the Eastern Emperor and the Eastern Patriarch both journeyed to another reunion council in Florence, Italy. And after intense debate for several months, from in 1438 and 39, all but one member of the large Eastern delegation agreed to a formula designed to heal the schism. But once again, overwhelming resistance in the Eastern churches rose against the terms of the agreement. Nonetheless, in what proved a losing battle, the Eastern Emperor John VIII and his successor Constantine XI both continued to defend the agreement. Um, but, so basically, these two just can't get along. No. That's, that's so it. when the so here's here we and we're going to jump up to some way down the line, which we'll come to when we come to this. But we're telling like the overarching story of these two of the schism. Yeah. And of the difference. There's also some stuff that happens during the Crusades that become a really big deal, too. Yeah. But we'll be in we'll the Crusades. We'll get the Crusades soon. But when the Turks attacked Constantinople in April 1453, this crisis brought all Christians in the city together early in the morning on May 20th. Now, why are we jumping to 1400? Because it has something to do with this schism between East and okay. West. So they tried to reconcile in 1200. They tried to reconcile in early 1400. Then in 1453... All the Christians in the city are brought together by this attack of the Turks on Constantinople. So early in the morning of May 29th, Constantine attended a united service for Orthodox and Catholics in the Hagia Sophia. Then he went out to battle where he met his death. The same day, the Turks captured the city and transformed Hagia Sophia into a mosque. And who was this that died? Constantine the whatever. Yeah, okay. So several other Constantines. The, but he is the emperor of the East, and this is the end of the Byzantine Empire. Yeah, I Remember got how it, yeah. we talked all those years it lasted? Mm-hmm. 
So now they've turned the Hagia Sophia into a mosque. With Emperor Constantine XI died not only the Byzantine Empire, but also the last serious effort to repair the Orthodox Catholic schism until, that is, the 1960s. Wow. Which is not too long ago. The Great Schism of 1054 was a major turning point in Christian history because it brought to a head centuries of East-West cultural disengagement, theological differences, and ecclesiastical suspicions. It also symbolized the isolation that would attend the Eastern churches for most of the millennium to follow. Wow. So the Eastern churches... What's going to be the card? 1054? Yeah, the Great Schism. Mm-hmm. It's just going to say the Great Schism, or it's yeah. going to say 1054? I don't, I don't think 1054 is on there because I don't think I give away dates on the cards. Okay. The various Eastern Orthodox churches have passed through cycles of decay and renewal since the 11th century. During the same period... He's just going to get something. I have somebody in the studio here just for a second. He's going to reach back in there. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, the various Eastern Orthodox churches have passed through the cycles of decay and renewal since the 11th century. During the same period, the Orthodox Church continued to be the principal Christian expression for a large part of the inhabited globe. Yet, even in the start of the 21st century, Orthodoxy remains mostly separated from currents affecting other Christians, whether Catholic, Protestant, or indigenous non-Western. So, so this episode is, by the way, listeners, that that is a beverage. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just trying to keep the vocal cords We're loose. It. We're getting it. I wouldn't. The schism between the East and West. This this episode is how we got to how how we got to it. What happened, and since then, yeah. And we'll come back to it. I mean, because there's going to be other things that refer back to it, right? Well, I mean, the, you talked about the relationship the between the churches will keep coming up throughout history. Yeah, yeah. But we wanted to use this opportunity to kind of define them and talk about their differences and how those differences came about and how they split. So, in the late sixth century, some Latin churches, the West, uh-huh. added the words "and from the sun,", sun. yeah, which which filioque. Means, means that. Front. Yeah, I and said f- that. Well, you said, I don't know what it is. No, I, don't, I, just I didn't do the research. Qu- I just looked it up and quoted to it. To the description of the, proce- to the procession of the Holy Spirit and in what many Eastern Orthodox Christians have a later stage argued as the violation of the canon of the Council of Ephesus. Right. Since the words were not included in the text by either the First Council of Nicaea or that of Constantinople. Yeah. So, so it's just a, dis- it's a disagreement about... It term, it's a term that refers to the Son, Jesus Christ, as an additional origin point of the Holy Spirit. Right. Instead a, of just the Father. Yeah, it's just a big theological dive. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, I'm just going to say, you may have read it. I don't know what I was doing over here. I don't either. But I did not get the filioque was. Was from the Son. Was fr- and from, from the, the Son. Yeah. It means and from the Son. Yeah. Okay. I remember at one point you saying. I don't know. I don't have it. And in then front I of said, me. "I'm going to pop it in right here while I'm sitting here." Yeah, and, and I you pulled did. it you up, popped it in, and said, "And, and from said, the sun." Okay, here we go. That's we come, we are the, cut from the same cloth, right? That's going to be the name of this episode: "Is <laughs> and from the sun." 
I don't know about that because it's. I didn't want to spend too much time on that because on what filioque? Yeah, because it's. It's one of the main reasons. I think the much bigger reason is the papal difference, and it's 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 a theological point that they came to fuss over. Yeah, and accused each other. And I know this author says that it was that and the papal thing, but I really don't think the papal thing could have been. Even if they agreed on this, they could have never agreed on that. On the Pope being the authority of over all? all the church, yeah, 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 and and I think that that just stirred this filioque thing up even more. Well, as you read that, as you talked about the difference in belief about the Pope and the Council of Bishops on the East, and just the Pope in the West, I'm leaning more toward the East on that. Yeah, it gives you some. It gives you. Uh, I, th- I find orthodoxy very interesting. Yeah, and it's really cool to. Interesting to look into it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Pretty cool. Woohoo. Filioque. Homoousius. Yeah. Yes, there we go. So we wanted to show, to talk about what it means to be Orthodox and how that compares to Catholicism and kind of how that came about. Well, and I, I asked that question a long time ago. Yeah. And I said, we're coming to it. And here it is. Here it is. So we're going to um, to jump back into some historic events of the middle of the 11th century in our upcoming episode and um, keep moving on from there. There's a lot. I was reviewing my notes and there's a lot happening in this 11th century that I had forgotten about. So <laughs> laying out the um, the mm. path. Wow, it's it's really cool. Um, something I was in. Are we out of time? Not eh? really. I, something I was in um, conversation about, thinking about is when we get into all these discussions of the church. We're like the church this, and this is what they believed in the West, or this is the Latin view, and this is the Eastern view, and all of this conversation is about what would be called the secular clergy, if you use that term. It's about what's happened at the top of the food chain, Mm -hmm. what's happening with the popes and the bishops and the patriarchs, and what what is day-to-day faith like. And that's going to come out as we go on, but that's just interesting to me. And you're thinking about if all these people can't read, then they can't, then there's, even if they had a Bible, (laughs) they couldn't read a Bible, right? So you're dependent on other people to tell you, which creates a situation where heresy is easy to come by. Yeah, and you're probably going to lead more toward tradition and example than anything else. Yeah, and the the in the Middle Ages, in the Western Church, maybe in the Eastern Church too, but in the West period, everything revolved around the church. So it wasn't an idea like you... And and it was a corporate faith, so it wasn't like, do I believe this? Do I believe that? It's a whole rhythm of everything about your day, your life, the seasons was around different worship practices, things like that. It's like constant for everybody. I think we read this somewhere. I'm, I know I've had it in the notes and seen it a couple of times that that the way you were inaugurated, brought into society was through baptism. Like to have a role in society. In, in the Middle Ages, you were baptized in it. So everybody was practicing Christianity. 
you know, this kind of, or you were a heretic, which didn't last very long. But anyway, we'll be getting into more of that too, the ins and outs we did of it. all that. So any thoughts, comments, anything? No, I just think this is a this is a pivotal episode to learn and about the schism between East Western and Eastern Church. That's yeah. my only comment is that this is where we made it to. Yep. Yep, and we're going to learn some about how that uh, approach of the popes came about. We'll be coming up on that. So yeah. Well, we did it, Ange. Episode eighty-two. Nothing funny throwing at the end. I, <laughs> I don't have anything to really. I mean, I could say filioque again. That's funny. I don't know if it's funny or not. Cool. All right. See you next time. Or see y'all at the next one. We're gonna hear you. This has been History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. Please rate and review, subscribe or follow wherever you stream your podcasts. You may also contact us and comment at onethingonly.org. Just click on the History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast tab. You can also support this podcast by checking the link to our Ko-fi site in our bio. Thanks for listening.